This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCallor here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Cargill's new science-based water commitments, Estee Lauder's new shade of green, how one utility is empowering energy equity, and why companies are wading in to flood resilience. We're in over our heads this week on 350. It's Friday, July 31st, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Greetings from very warm New Jersey. Yeah, the whole East Coast has been a little bit hot and heavy lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Out here in California, it's typical summer, which is chilly mornings, and then it warms up to Mm -hmm. a charming 73 degrees in the Bay Area, (laughs) and then gets cold as soon as the sun dips behind the the trees. Uh, But but nice. But um, one sort of sad piece here in the Bay Area is we're we're all saddened by the loss of one of our good friends. Not to start this on a downer, but I just do want to acknowledge uh, the passing of Bruce Clafter, a longtime Green Biz friend who died a, about a little over a week ago after a short and intense bout of can- pancreatic cancer. Bruce was most recently the vice president of sustainability strategy and outreach at Flex, the contract manufacturing firm here in Silicon Valley. And before that was with Applied Materials. Uh, But aside from his credentials, he was just the nicest person, just a good guy, the classic good guy, and uh, uh, always there, always honest and ready to offer his his unvarnished input, which we appreciated, even though sometimes it was harsh, but also a loyal pal of Green Biz and and the whole sustainability community. So... uh, uh, our colleague, Pete May, president of Green Biz Group, wrote a really lovely remembrance. And then I asked a number of other people, executives at at HP and LinkedIn, just a number of other uh, organizations and nonprofits in the Silicon Valley area to weigh in on Bruce. So I really encourage you to, to check this out. And, it, you know, we're together at this point in the history of sustainable business where the first generation is getting up there. And um, we haven't lost very many people at all. 
uh, but I think, uh, sadly, we're going to start to see more of our great uh, leaders leaving us, and um, and not just the humans behind them, but also the, the knowledge that they yeah. bring with them. Yeah. I really enjoyed learning far more about Bruce. I didn't know him very well personally. I did interview him actually very recently in February, but uh, I do encourage you to read the piece. And, and I was really touched by the as you mentioned before, the comments from other members of the community uh, who apparently were able to watch his service virtually on Zoom. Many of them showed up, so that says a lot. Yeah. Well, let's leave that there and go on to the weekend review. So extreme weather, uh, flood resilience, uh, cities, real estate, uh, fascinating area as it relates to risk and resilience. And we have a piece this week from Bev Adams, the head of catastrophe resilience and visual intelligence. My old job. No, that's a great title. Uh, Catastrophe resilience (laughs) and visual intelligence at Marsh Risk Consulting, part of the Marsh McLennan companies, um, writing about uh, what's going on and, and has companies are, as I said, wading in to flood resilience and uh, and all that comes with it. Yeah. So what struck me about this piece, because I actually felt like I, I had such a personal perspective. I didn't personally lose property in Hurricane Sandy, in Superstorm Sandy. But there was a huge debate here in New Jersey about the businesses and the people that kept rebuilding and rebuilding. And, and this money was going to to organizations and families and so forth that you knew they were going to rebuild something in kind of the same old way. They weren't going to think about it. They were just going to put this pretty house where it probably shouldn't be. And they were going to not think much about our resilience, but yet that money was going to go out there. And that's the role of an insurance company to pay out those claims. And so this piece talks about that concept, but but from a corporate perspective. And the, the example was really vivid to me. Like, hi, this company keeps claiming every year and they know this is going to happen. And it's just kind of this, it's like a groundhog day of flooding, right? It just keeps happening. Um, but company B, who thinks about it in a different way um, and, and, and looks at it as sort of, a, I think it was it called property flood resilience, sort of the concept. There, there's a specific organization in, in the UK, but the idea that these policies should change and focus on rewarding resilience. And I'm like, so logical, such a logical idea, right? And, and this week I uh, had the honor of keynoting an event by the National Association of Realtors. These, this is an association of residential uh, buyers and sellers of, of property. We, know, we all know what realtors are, I think. Um, and uh, talked about a lot about resilience and I, I think this this fits in a, in a certain way because when they talk about resilience in real estate and, and, and AR, the National Association of Realtors, has a partnership with the National Association of Home Builders around resilience, and they're talking about disaster recovery and building codes and building construction and the impacts on sea level rise and the very shaky flood insurance program that we have, that the federal government has here in the U.S. And what I kind of tweaked them on a little bit was, yeah, you know, but what resilience really means is not just the real estate. What resilience really means is uh, good schools and affordable food and clean air and water and reliable clean energy and, of course, safety and affordable housing and health access to health care and mobility. 
frankly, all the things that your customers, your buyers and sellers of home uh, want. This is, these are things they wanted without calling it sustainability. And so a lot of this is how do we think about resilience? Yes, how do we mitigate against flood uh, challenges? And there's a lot that needs to happen in the public sector and the private sector, as Bev Adams points out in this piece. But also, how do we think about resilience more generally when it comes to things like floods and other natural disasters? So I think this is a really interesting area and seeing how the private sector is starting to wade into this area is 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 hopeful. Uh, but as I also know that there's just a, a much bigger systemic problem that needs to be fixed here. I'm not even talking about climate and and and, and the with the things that are creating the floods. I'm just talking about how we ensure how we incentivize building back on the same floodplains that just got devastated, uh, and how those hundred and thousand year floods are happening once or twice a decade. And so this is a, an area that I think companies. Uh, are going to be integrating more into their risk profile. And I think it's about time. So let's move over to an interview, fascinating interview that you did, Heather, uh, on a completely different topic, uh, but equally serious topic. And this is from Estee Lauder Company, uh, their sustainability leader, Nancy Mann. Nancy Mann. Nancy Mann. Nancy Mann. And how they're thinking about uh, sustainability and as it relates to, to to racial and social justice and, and other issues. So what'd you learn? So I've been wanting to have an interview with Nancy since I met her last year at Climate Week. She was on a panel that I, uh, that I facilitated. And uh, what fascinates me about her is where she came from. So she's a, she's a lawyer <laughs> by background, and she has spent a lot of time with the Estee Lauder company's like foundation work, right? So she's worked a lot on AIDS efforts for them in the past and was very involved in their philanthropic ventures. And four years ago, she came uh, over to the corporate side to handle the CSR um, citizenship and sustainability strategy. So there were like tons of things that uh, popped out for me in this interview, but there were two in particular that I'll mention. One is uh, the way that they've pivoted on the the uh, racial justice part of of this and you know as a as a cosmetic company cosmetics company uh there's a lot of criticism of of this industry in general i mean the the beauty the ideals of beauty but from all the magazines and vogue and and so forth have all been focused on white on the white ideal and um so they've been actually consumer wise coming to grips with that sort of reality um, over the past several years, and they started working on this a couple years ago. But as far as the, the the link between systemic racism and the climate movement, um, they they've really awakened. And so, I, I there are some of their commitments are pretty pretty amazing um, that they came out with within a couple of weeks of of the the really serious first wave of protests um, as far as their new racial equity policies. Um, one of them in particular was reaching U.S. population parity for black employees at all levels of the company within five years. That's a pretty aggressive goal. Um, and it's also a really specific goal. I love the idea of what's the population look like? That's what our company should look like. So boom, right away, she and her team um, 
really focused on on getting their company their employees involved and they got them very engaged they've actually i think it was 2.3 million dollars now have been donated and matched um through through program that they started um within you know days of, of everything really kicking up and then the other thing that really struck out for me was her insights as to why she has um, not just diversity in terms of ethnicity on her team, but diversity in terms of sector views. So she's got people with government experience. She's got people with public sector experience. She's got people from different areas, foundations. Of course, that's where her background is. And it helps them think, think about programs in very different ways. Like, for example, right now, um, they, they just in, invested in their first virtual power purchase agreement. They don't have a lot of... Um, of capacity that they have to offset. And so when they went out and did this, they were like, what do we do with this excess power? And they thought, well, isn't this, wouldn't this be a great way to donate it? Donate it to a cause, get it to a community that really needs it. If it's not donated, how is it made available to that community at some um, you know, reasonable cost? So I, I just, I love how she thinks. She's very creative and, and, and also very aggressive. So yeah, it was a wonderful interview and I encourage everyone to, uh, to take a look at it. I'll second that. And one of the things I liked about what she had to say, I mean, aside from all of the the, the specific initiatives you're talking about and the, and the innovation that she's brought to this is, is what's happening to uh, her sustainability program in this moment. And the reality is it's, it's you know, nothing to see here continuing, uh, not only just bringing in the racial and social justice components, but continuing and even accelerating some of the programs. And I think that's, a story we hear again and again these days from from companies that um, that these things continue relentlessly. That there's the pandemic, the recession, the social upheaval is not uh, turning companies away from anything. If if anything, they're leaning into some new things, and in most cases, not necessarily abandoning the the old stuff and maybe letting up a little bit while they lean into some new things. Uh, but in general, and it certainly sounds that way with Estee Lauder, they continue to move apace. So, Joel, you also had a great piece this week that I very much appreciated since I've been following the food and ag beat a little bit, the regenerative agriculture beat in particular. But it's about Cargill's new water targets. And you talk about the fact that their science, I think their science, not science-based necessarily, but definitely founded by science. So t- what, what's this all about? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Cargill released uh, a, a set of, of commitments which are on water, which is you know, companies do all the time. But this one was uh, specifically what they call the science-based approach to water. Now, there's some controversy that's come out of this that I've learned about after this piece came out. You know, the, and the science-based approach, it just as it is with, with climate, is, is looking at, well, what's our fair share of the problem? And so let's adjust or uh, align our commitments and goals uh, with our fair share. And with carbon, it's a little bit easier because uh, we say we emit or we're responsible for emitting, you know, X tons. And so therefore that becomes our, our target. With water, it's different because water, uh, with, with carbon, you can anywhere in the world that you, that you provide some kind of relief or, that it's providing it globally, it, it, it doesn't, it some, more, some ways doesn't really matter. The atmosphere doesn't really care where the benefits are, are, are taking place. With water, it's very local. And so how do you 
uh, think about that and how do you identify what they call the, their priority watersheds, which is the ones where they have a significant operational or supply chain water footprint, which is what they're committing to globally is, is looking at how do they restore water? How do they conserve water? How do they reduce toxics uh, from the waste stream? Um, and it's very innovative. What I learned post-publication is that there is no official science-based target. And so the, the science-based target network, the organization that sort of owns this process, there's a science-based targets initiative, which I think is to set the standards, but the set the, the framework and how you make a science-based goals. But there's the science-based targets network, which is a group of NGOs that are saying, well, what's next? And, and how do we create a science-based targets for, for land use? for forestry, for fisheries, and for fresh water, they don't have an official uh, science-based target framework yet. And so they got a little bit miffed that we, that Cargill came out and talked about this as a science-based target. That doesn't undermine in any way, in my mind, the vision, the goal that they've created. And I have to say that Cargill worked with uh, the Pacific Institute, uh, Jason Morrison, their CEO is also the head of the United Nations CEO Water Mandate, and WRI, the World Resources Institute, which has done a lot of work on metrics for water. So I got a little bit, uh, took a little bit of a deep dive, I guess, if you can, that sort of sounds oxymoronic, a little <laughs> deep dive, but um, right. a shallow dive, let's call it, into what they did and why and how they're going to do it. And I just thought it was uh, no company had done this before, certainly in the ag space, which is the source of 80% of water use in the U.S. and 70% globally, freshwater use. Um, and ag is also a major contributor to both the water pollution and climate change, so it's ripe for change in the water arena. This is the first company to go th this comprehensive and to do it in their, not just in their own operations, which is what most ag companies have committed to in terms of their water goals, but to do it in their entire supply chain. I think it's important to point out they have somewhere around 250,000 suppliers worldwide. Wow. So hopefully this will force some other people's hand and maybe now there will be official, <laughs> an official framework. So. Yeah, well, it was, it's forthcoming, yeah. they say. And, and maybe this will accelerate mm -hmm, it to your point. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, you know, this is where you kind of have to be careful about how you talk about these things because um, there's a lot of people who are watching and who care and, and words and definitions matter. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Sarah Golden, GreenBiz Energy Analyst, joins us to talk about my home state, New Jersey. Yay! Sarah spoke to New Jersey's Utility Board President, Joe Fiordaliso, about the state's energy policy. Welcome, Sarah. Good to be here. So what did you and uh, Fiordaliso talk about? So I reached out about two things in particular. One is that I noticed that the state had uh, made a commitment to create an Office of Clean Energy and Equity. And then within the month, I saw an announcement about investment in offshore wind. So I found these two announcements to be kind of this one-two punch for clean energy. The Office of Clean Energy Equity is the first of its kind, as far as I can tell. 
and that it's really working to get clean energy to reach more populations in New Jersey. I'll let Fiorda Liso explain the details. The whole purpose of it is to ensure the fact that every community, regardless of income, uh, regardless of where they live, is afforded the opportunity to participate in the green revolution that is occurring in the state of New Jersey. And we cannot be successful looking at it from a very selfish perspective if everyone is not involved. And everyone should be involved because everyone pays into it. And to say it's only for the super rich is, doesn't sit well with me or Governor Murphy. So it's still the early stages of this program. They're still working out all of the details. And right now there's also a bill in the, in the New Jersey legislature that has been introduced by Troy Singleton that would also support an office like this. But for now, it's just amazing to make this commitment to make sure that all the clean energy initiatives are working for everybody in the community. And what about offshore wind? So Fyodor Liso is doing something I hear those in the clean energy industry talking about a lot, but I haven't seen a lot of action towards since the COVID crisis struck. And that's the idea of investing in clean energy to create jobs and really bolster the economy following um, the economic fallout from the coronavirus. So for context, the week before I spoke to Fyodor Liso, which was in the end of June, New Jersey had just approved the nation's first offshore wind port, and that is projected to create jobs in construction, but more importantly, will also be creating a new industry in offshore wind. When I asked Fyodor Liso about the potential for offshore wind, he, he explained it to me by first taking a look back and the state's history with solar energy. Here's Fyodor Liso. In the early two, 2000s, we started uh, the solar energy initiative here in the state of New Jersey. And it has been a very successful program. But like every program, it needed a little boost to get started. And we provided that boost here in New Jersey with grants and incentives and so on. Today, we have over 140,000 solar installations. We have more solar installations per capita than any state in the union. That includes California. <laughs> which is population-wide much bigger than us. So it has created over 7,000 jobs here in New Jersey, has contributed to the economic diversity here in the state of New Jersey, and we expect the same, Sarah, to occur in the wind industry, but even on a bigger scale. We expect during the time of the construction and the initiation of the wind industry offshore to create approximately 15,000 jobs. We also believe that it will bring manufacturing into New Jersey and permanent jobs. We expect the first turbines to go in the water in 2024. We are extremely excited and we are intent on staying on schedule because it does mean jobs. It does mean economic incentive and boost to the state economy. And every state, because of the COVID virus, is in financial difficulty right now. And unless the federal government comes up to bat, we're going to have to do it on our own. And offshore wind is going to be one of the tools in our toolbox here in New Jersey. So I don't know how many people realize just how big of a solar state 
New Jersey is and, and the, the impact that it's had in the past years. And, and it changed a bit under our previous governor, um, but I'm so thrilled as a New Jerseyite to see the investments that Phil Murphy is making in solar and in wind and with with the idea that it is a job creation energy so i'm you know as a citizen and a resident of the state it's really um gratifying to see all the work that's being done new jersey is also being a, a very active part of a lot of northeastern regional initiatives along with new york and connecticut and other states it's rejoined the regional greenhouse gas initiative there's also a huge transportation investment initiative going on that's really looking closely at electric vehicles. So from as a resident, it's, it's really gratifying. Yeah, it was, I confess, I didn't know about all of New Jersey's leadership before I did some research for this story. And it really shows how much leadership uh, the states have when it comes to driving clean energy right now. And I wanna share one more clip that I loved about from uh, Fierdo Liso. I really am impressed with the way that he understands that energy is this continuum and that we're that it's dynamic and that it's always in flux. And he has this philosophy that the markets are constantly changing and it's our responsibility to really be embracing new technologies and new opportunities within this. So this last clip is from our conversations and it really illustrates how Fiordaliso's opinions have been formed. When I was a boy growing up in Newark, New Jersey, I grew up in a cold water flat. It's an apartment that has heat in one room, generally the kitchen. And you have a stove that also serves as a heating unit. And you would go down to the, quote, cellar, end quote, and get coal to put in that heating unit to provide heat for the apartment. So energy has come a long way. Now, this was in Newark, New Jersey. And most folks lived in cold water flats in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And so energy has come a long way. 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, my goodness, what was all that fuss about the solar industry? What was all that fuss about people talking about the wind industry? What was all that stuff about storage? Because it's going to be natural. It's going to be what's happening. And maybe even sooner than 20 years ago from now. So I, I think we're seeing, and I use the word revolution because I think we're going, that's what we're seeing. And we haven't seen an industry since the industrial revolution, I don't think, transform so quickly as we have the energy industry. And we all have to have the opportunity to participate in that energy industry one way or another and decide how we want our energy generated. And we have the availability of making those decisions today. And people say, well, it's too expensive. Well, my reply to that, the solar industry, I can build a solar array today for half the cost of what it was back in 2008. And the price continues to decline. Same thing's going to happen with wind. As it becomes a permanent part of our life, the cost is going to continue to decline. Well, I am very biased, but it is great to hear my state is showing leadership on this. Um, I think so many uh, states outside of California, which has really been a true leader in a lot of the clean energy movement, um, are doing so, so many great things. And I look forward to showcasing more uh, of the, that action in the future. Thanks for checking in on this one, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. We'll end this episode this week with our final batch of highlights from our interviews with the most recent 30 Under 30 class. This week, we'll hear from Alexis Curitan with the Natural Resources Defense Council, Hilda Liswani with WeBloom, and Lillian Liu from Futera. Enjoy. My name is Alexis Curitan, and I'm the Clean Energy and Equity Advocate at the Natural Resource Defense Council in San Francisco, California. So my dad was a public health professional and would always go above and beyond for his patients. And for him, he was saying, like, son, I'm going to a career where, you know, you'll never, you know, you'll never buy a business. People are always going to need access to energy and how to power their homes, um, their buildings, and their cars, right? And so there always be a need for that. And two, he always recommended, like, go into something that will fill you up, like, you know, internally, it will make you feel good. And I know the work that I do fighting and advocating on behalf of community members that look like me um, and making sure that whatever they have access to in regards to, like, within their home or the car they drive or the bus that they ride on, that having access to that doesn't impose an additional cost on them, whether it's their health, their wallet, or their family. And so that's really what like motivates me uh, to do this work, and it's good work. Hello, uh, my name is Hilda Liswani, and I am the founder and CEO of WeBloom. And at WeBloom, we are building the pipeline for investable and sustainable women-led enterprises, particularly in the verticals of uh, regenerative and circular economy. And we are focusing mainly on African women. Uh, we found that there's a, a lot of energy and um, focus at the moment when it comes to sustainable investing in Africa, but those those streams are going uh, still to the traditional players, uh, which are disproportionately male, unfortunately, at the moment. However, at the same time, there are many women who are very active uh, in this field of sustainability in Africa, who unfortunately, because of structural elements and uh, unconscious biases, uh, they are still operating on the fringe and margins of this conversation. So through eBloom, what we're really trying to do is, is mainstream the voices of uh, women-led sustainable enterprises in Africa and really help them in becoming investable um, so that they can uh, scale and grow and that their solutions, which are tackling the world's you know biggest issues, be it around climate change, or a circular economy uh, really 
give them the launch pad to bring their solutions to life and, and create a real change. Hello, my name is Lillian Liu. Uh, I'm a sustainability strategist at Futera in New York. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic and maybe I'm a slightly brainwashed and, you know, optimism is part of, like, Futera's DNA and, and I think if you're working in sustainability, you have to be somewhat optimistic, otherwise, you know, all the data and facts are probably going to bring you down. But, you know, one thing that gives me hope is the fact that the next generation, I have three young siblings. Um, to me, they seem so much smarter and they know so much more about sustainability and climate, for example. At least in Sweden, it seems to be incorporated into education in a way that it wasn't for me, at least. And just in my day-to-day, you know, there are so many people now uh, in the younger generation, in our generation and younger, that care about climate change and about social justice. And they they truly, truly want to spend their time doing something meaningful and something with purpose, right? So we know that, but, you know, I think we also feel that as we work in the field. I get these emails every day about how to get into the field. And it's people that like have a master in environmental science, but it's also people that never sort of had a sustainability background. And that's to me a trend that's not going away. So I guess a lot of people in sort of non-sustainability are transforming, at least among the younger generation. And I think that is something that's giving me a lot of hope. A lot of us in our generation grew up with this abundance, right? We can afford to care. And our biggest worry wasn't to put food on the table, like for my grandparents or even my parents. Um, but it's also like people are better informed. We have access to information and data that we didn't stand about like inequality and climate destruction. So hopefully we'll see an army of change makers. I think, I think we're already seeing it, but even more. Thanks for those, Heather. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this time around. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. We welcome your comments, questions, tips, anything you want. Just email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in.